I want to encourage those of you who are watching both by way of Facebook and website as well as in our NBCC app. Let's take a moment now and make sure you share this worship gathering uh, with your family and with your friends. Uh, They may discover that this week after week is a place for them to continue to not only grow in their connection to God, but find the strength and empowerment they need uh, to keep moving forward in this pandemic. And you can truly uh, perhaps transform their lives in the way that Mark's life uh, has and continues to be transformed. Thanks, Mark, for that testimony. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you and give you praise for uh, those that you have gathered to engage with me in this teaching moment. Uh, I acknowledge and know that some people are going to be watching me on Sundays. Others are going to be watching me later this week or perhaps later on uh, in the month. But I'm trusting that whenever uh, individuals engage with this teaching, the timing will be orchestrated by you. And so I'm asking that you will uh, pour out your spirit now. Enlighten, encourage, inspire. Do the work of transformation in their lives but also continue to work of transformation in my own. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see all of you. And if you're joining us for the very first time, I'm in the third week of a series uh, that I'm calling Living with Hope in an Upside-Down World. And if you missed the first two weeks, we encourage you to go to our website. It's right here on the uh, screen. So go to our website and make sure you catch up with the last two weeks. Here's the deal. Uh, here's what I mean by an upside-down world. It's a world where the abnormal has become the norm. It's a world where personal pain and suffering is the context in which you are living everyday life. It's a world that's upside-down. And I've said in the last two weeks that we all need to find a hope that does not leak and that's not easily stolen. Can you just type that in the chat? A hope that does not leak and not easily stolen. And I'm suggesting Paul, rather, who is our teacher, as he writes to the believers in Philippi, uh, is suggesting that hope is found in the person of Jesus and in our relationship with God in a very tangible way. Now, uh, let's... Look at what he, this passage we've been looking at for the last uh, couple of weeks, and, and he gives us a little insight into how to maximize that hope in, in an upside-down world. Here it is. For I fully expect and hope, Paul writes, and he writes this from a prison cell, that I will never be ashamed, but that I will, be, will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that, here's the insight, my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or whether I die. In other words, Paul says the chief goal of the living of his life is to honor God. He seeks to honor God with his life, whether he lives or whether he dies. In other words, in every circumstance. That's pretty powerful. Now, let me just point out that Not only is Paul writing to a group of Christians who are living in an upside-down world because they are dealing with escalating persecution in Philippi, but he's living in an upside-down world because he's writing this from prison. Now, this is a very important, very significant point, and it ties to this notion, a life that honors God within 
every circumstance. I just want to suggest there's something empowering about this notion. All right, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is an innocent man in prison. He has, he has committed no crimes against Rome, although he's in a Roman prison cell. He's ultimately swept up and arrested because of his faith. And uh, as he teaches this insight, that his whole life is dedicated to honoring God within every circumstance, he teaches us something about how it's possible, listen up, how it's possible to be a victim and yet not have a victim mentality. Why don't you write that in, a chat, in the chat? A victim without a victim mentality. This is powerful insight. Listen to it here. It teaches us. Some of you may be watching this teaching actually from a prison cell. Because I know that all over the world people have been arrested who are innocent, have been arrested and you're in, that are in prison. Some for political reasons, some for religious reasons. Here in America, there are some people of color that are in prison and are innocent because they happen to be people of color in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so you've got that extreme of victimization, right? And then some of you, Paul was actually under house arrest, uh, and some of you who have been living through either semi at times and permanent at other times, uh, all-encompassing rather, uh, shelter-in-place circumstances, you can kind of relate to what it must have felt like to be under house arrest. And it's, in a way, kind of a different kind of victimization. Victimized by the pandemic, by the spread of COVID-19. And then between these kind of, these extremes, there's a whole lot of very heavy stuff where people have been deeply wounded by injustice and deeply wounded by evil. Some of you are living through extraordinarily painful circumstances, even as you listen to me right now. It is without question that you have endured an experience that has victimized you. And yet Paul teaches us through this insight, he says, that, 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 that if you adopt the posture that you're, you're going to live a life that honors God in every circumstance, that that theological insight, that high goal for your living can in fact inoculate you against having a victim mentality. What's a victim mentality? A victim mentality occurs when you allow the experience of your woundedness to transform into an excuse where you relegate yourself to a permanent status of nobodiness. And that that's how you see yourself. A victim mentality occurs when because of the difficulty of your circumstance, you simply throw yourself, you throw your hands in the air and you totally give up. And so now you're simply drinking or drugging yourself to death 
or you have surrendered to the toxicity of hopelessness within and it has turned you into the kind of a, into an, an abuser who is physically or emotionally abusing the people around you, turning them into victims, all because you've relegated yourself to a permanent status of nobodiness. It's a victim mentality. What Paul says is that the person who says that I'm going to honor God with my life Regardless of the circumstance, this is a person who is super empowered to find purpose even in the worst of circumstances. Rather than relegating your life to a permanent status of nobodiness, suggesting that there's nothing that I do that matters, that I'm hopeless, that life is meaningless. Let me just give up and throw my hands up and surrender to depression or to despair and a long list of other things. Paul says that when you live your life to honor God in every circumstance, that it is the power of God's spirit and his eternal purpose that empowers you with a, with a purpose and a sense of value that does not leak and cannot be robbed from you. For some it means pushing back against the forces of injustice. For others, it means caring for an elderly parent. For others, it means working in a factory, but doing it with eternal purpose and eternal meaning. For Brian Stevenson, the one who wrote Just Mercy, it meant going to bat, working for those inmates in prison who had been unjustly accused. And the list goes on and on. It's a powerful thing when you decide that the number one goal for your living is to live a life that honors God in every circumstance. That means that your circumstances become vehicles for the power of God to explode through your living. You make a difference in whatever circumstance all right you know what I'm talking about I'm talking about the eternal question of the why behind your living that's what I'm suggesting that you wrestle with the why a few weeks ago I talked to you about Eric Liddell Eric Liddell back in the early 1920s were it was an Olympian Olympian superstar and a Jesus follower Here's what he says. I, was, I, I, I used this a few weeks ago. I just love it. I'll say it again. I, he, say, he said, I believe God made me for a purpose. Do you believe that God made you, your life for a purpose? Paul said, I, and, and he, even though he's in prison, God made my life for a purpose. And the fact that I'm in prison cannot squash out that purpose. That you can imprison my body. But even though my body is in prison, I can still do the work of spiritual liberation as I write and preach and teach and, and send letters to all of the churches that I've planted. I, I, I'm made for a purpose. Are you made for a purpose? But, but he goes on to write, he also made me fast. He's talking about his giftedness. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And in 1921, in the, in the Olympics, Eric would prove to the world one more thing, that when he ran, he ran to honor God. 
Why are you running through life? Are you running on to God? Why are you doing the work that you're doing? Why are you, why are you, why are you an educator? Why are you doing the work of a cashier on the front line? Why are you a nurse or a doctor? Why, why are you driving the UPS truck and delivering the Amazon packages? Why, why, why do you do what you do? Do you know why? Well, let me just acknowledge right here that there are a variety of whys oftentimes behind why we do what we do. For some, for example, uh, the why is that uh, the, the why is that it's, somebody will say it's my passion or because I'm gifted or because I need a paycheck, right? I need to pay bills or because, look, it's my duty. I'm the oldest person in my family. I have more resources than anybody else. It's my responsibility. Some, some will say it's because of my parents. Look, you know, I, uh, the, the business failed to me. Uh, they wanted me to to do this career. But hopefully because you were listening to this message today or you're listening to the last two messages, hopefully somewhere on your list is also because you want to honor God with your life. And here's the good news, that even if honoring God with your life is number six on your list, I want you to know that God is saying to you, well done, awesome, fabulous. Because the most important thing right now is that God just says, look, I want to make the list. Can you write in the chat, God made my list. God made my list. See, because God is always ready to meet us where we are. But when God makes the list, even if he's number six, watch this. God wants to continue to work in your life and in my life so that today he may be number six, honoring him. But tomorrow, maybe we move a little higher. And then next month or two months or six months, maybe we move a little higher. And maybe a year from now, the number one reason why you live your life on the planet is to bring honor to God in every circumstance. Because every time you move up a notch in terms of prioritizing honoring God in your life, you begin to see things that you've been missing. You open yourself up to, to the incredible supernatural power of God at work in your life. You, you, you elevate your game. So, I want you to think in terms of becoming. And this is where we, uh, well, I alluded to this last week. To think about yourself and to think about others in terms of becoming is, in fact, to recognize that you're in process. It is, in fact, to recognize that other people are in process. God is dealing with you right now through the lens of your becoming. That, 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 that he is, watch this, grateful to be in the number six slot on your priority list, but he's not content. Because he's got more for you, and that's tied to your elevating him among the priorities of your life. So, so, so how, how might you cooperate with God so that the process of your becoming moves you in a direction that ultimately you, you wake up one day saying, as Paul said, that my chief goal 
the, 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 the greater vision that is bigger than my greatest dream that guides my life is to honor God. He actually says Christ, meaning God as he has revealed himself through the salvific, redemptive life of his son, Jesus. In every circumstance. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, let me suggest there's a prayer you ought to pray. Here's the prayer that Paul prays, and I'm suggesting that you ought to pray this prayer. If type in the, in the Facebook chat, pray the prayer. So what prayer should one pray? Here it is. Here Paul is modeling it as he prays for those that are dear to him in the city of Philippi. So this is a prayer you ought to pray for yourself. This is a prayer that you ought to pray for others. That you, the, the people in your life that you want to see their lives transform. You want to see them elevate their game in life. This is a prayer that you ought to pray. Uh, can you simply say pray the prayer? Here it is. He says, I pray that your love will overflow. Here's the process. More and more. And that you will, here's the process, keep on growing. That's the becoming. In the knowledge and understanding. Ultimately, what it means of who God is in your life and in the world. I pray. Once you start praying this prayer for yourself on a daily basis, it's a short prayer. Lord, would you would you allow your love to overflow more and more in me? Lord, I, wanna, I, I need you to help me because I'm kind of self-centered and I'm kind of self-focused and I'm kind of materialistic and, and I get distracted by all these things. But, but since we're living through a pandemic and, 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 and since I've kind of, life has been stripped down for me, maybe this is a good time for you to kind of retool my heart and teach me how to love you more and more and more. And by the way, I get that the more I love you, the more I love people, even the folks that I call my enemies, even... Even, even folk that I, I don't necessarily like, but I, the more I love you, the more I begin to love people. Yeah, I want that. See, that flows out of a life whose number one goal is to honor God in every circumstance. And then there are four questions that I want to suggest that you wrestle with. The four questions... Uh, begin, let's, let's look at verse 9. And it's going to frame for us the first question. This is verse 9. Here's what Paul says. Well, I want you to understand what really matters. Or I might say, what matters most, Paul is writing. So that you may live a pure and blameless, you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's returns. In other words, in order for you to live your best life, pure and blameless, you got to know what really matters. Here's the question. Are you focused on what really matters? That's the question. Now listen, those of you who are in relationship with people that you love, couples and folk who are married, let me give you a little insight. It's a secret to how you can almost immediately dramatically decrease the number of arguments you're having, dramatically decrease the tension, and dramatically increase the peace in your relationships. Here's the secret. Listen up. Figure out what really matters or what matters most. When my wife uh, and I, we conduct marriage retreats from time to time and she regularly tells a story that flows out of the first uh, five years of our marriage. 
during those times, she would be at home and she would cook dinner and she'd ask me what time I'd be coming home. And I'd give her a time, let's say six o'clock. But inevitably, I'd get there at 6.30 or 7 or 7.30, horrible. And so that would lead to incredible fights, as you would imagine. At some point in a time of prayer, Rhonda gets a revelation. It's kind of a multi-layered revelation. Number one, part of the revelation was she couldn't change me. But she could adjust, readjust her expectations. She had power over her expectations. The second revelation was that using as a litmus test for how much I loved her based on whether I got home in time for dinner or not was the wrong strategy. Don't use that as a litmus test. Look at all the other things that I was doing to show her how loved she was. The third revelation suggests then that the reason why I was late had nothing to do with Rhonda. It had to do with the, 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 the unique toxic combination within me of immaturity and ambition. And that what Rhonda needed to do was to figure out how to focus on what mattered most. And that was to create an environment that, would, that would, would raise her own level of happiness by, by her not trying to control what she couldn't control and create an environment that would allow the two of us to nurture our relationship in a less stressed context. So you know what she did? This is what she, she decided. She, so she told me, she said, hey, dinner's going to be at such and such six o'clock. If you make it, great. If you don't, I'm going to go ahead and eat. And when you get home, we'll make sure you have something to eat. Voila. The tension dropped. The peace rose. All because she figured out how to focus on what mattered most. Are you focused on what matters, matters most? The second question that we have to wrestle through that helps to direct the process of becoming in our lives to move us to a place where honoring God with our lives in every circumstance becomes the, the, the highest standard of our living is this question. Is God your instrument in life or are you God's instrument? Now, when I ask this question, it kind of sounds like an indictment, but I don't mean it to be that way because here's what's the truth. Here's what this is really true. For most of us, we get into a relationship with God. Those of us who are Christians, we commit to following Jesus primarily out of self-interest. <laughs> Let me say it another way. Uh, is God your instrument or, let's say it this way, is God on your team or are you on God's team? And most of us get into this, this relationship with Jesus because we need him on our team. That's how we, we've got some dreams. We need his blessings. Uh, we, we're trying to make sure we get into heaven. We want to make sure we have Jesus. All of this stuff, right? It's self-interest. All important stuff. Now, here's the deal. Jesus' grace and his love and his understanding about who we are, it accommodates that. Yeah, I'm thinking back at the, uh, about the Warriors. I'm, I'm an avid Golden State Warriors fan. And I remember when, after decades of them 
uh, not winning the championship, they won their first championship. I think it was 2015-2016 season. The second year, they came this close to winning their second and they lost. The coach made a decision. He says, you know what? We need another player so that when the core, whether it be Clay or uh, uh, Curry or Green, is not having a good night, somebody else can fill in the gaps. And along the same time period, KD, Kevin Durant said, sign me up. KD joined the team. And they would end up, at the end of, the, of his stay with them, they'd end up winning four out of the next five, four out of five runs to the championship. It's remarkable. You know why? Because on the nights that they needed somebody to block shots because the rest of them weren't doing it well, KD did it. On the nights that they needed somebody to score free throw after free throw after free throw because other people weren't actually making it happen, KD did it. On the nights that they needed a playmaker, somebody to throw the ball with precision or score an extra 35 or 40 points, KD did it. KD allowed them to be their best selves, and wherever they had a deficit, KD made up the gap. That's one of the most powerful things about having Jesus in our lives when we start off in relationship with him. I mean, he allows us, in a sense, to pursue our sense of dreams, our, our goals in life. And, and, and he facilitates an experience where, where because of our faith and our confidence, uh, uh, we can be our best selves. And wherever the gaps are, Jesus tends to fill in those gaps. But ultimately, as we keep becoming... Jesus' goal for our lives is not that we get stuck in that place. At some point, we should cross a threshold where we wake up one day and we say, you know what, Jesus, I don't really just want you on my team. I actually want to be on your team. I actually want you to lead. I, I, I want you to, your guiding purpose to, 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 to be the determining factor in how I handle my marriage, in what job I pick, in what school I decide to go to, and whether or not I, I'm a, I decide to be a stay-at-home parent or whether or not I care for this agent, I want your, your will to be the guiding principle. And in that moment, your relationship with God totally changes. If you're not careful, and if you don't make that shift, you'll end up getting stuck. And the best kind of lens through which you look at your relationship with God would be more or less like, uh, if you're not careful, faith will become a spiritual credit card. That you'll be believing God for a husband or for a car or for a house or for a job. In other words, I, it's all about me. It's all about me. And I'm saying to you, God says, look, it's okay for it to start off to be about you because that's where we are. But, but, but growth and process and becoming should land you in a place where ultimately it becomes all about Jesus. Jesus and his purpose. That's where Paul is in this text. It's all about him and his purpose in life. His purpose for your life. So in that season, you're able to believe God despite the loss of a home or despite the onslaught of sickness or despite a divorce because you're ultimately have decided that you will live a life that honors God in all circumstances. All circumstances. The third question. 
Oh, let me just, here's a text, because this is what makes sure you have a text here, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Here's what Paul says, he makes the point. He died for everyone, Jesus died for everyone, so that those who received his new life will no longer live for themselves. And that's the process as we turn, right? That ultimately, we, we reach a point where we get this wonderful word. Instead, they will live for Jesus, who died and was raised for them, that we will surrender all. For his highest call. Isn't that awesome? The third question is, here's the third question. Who's your spiritual mentor? There's a fabulous story told in uh, in 2 Kings. Elisha has a spiritual mentor by the name of Elijah. And Elijah is about to be transitioned, taken from the earth into eternity. And Elisha knows that this is the day. And he's, he's staying as close to him as possible. And they cross the Jordan River. Elijah crosses the Jordan River. Elisha crosses the Jordan River. He's trying to stay as close as he can. And here's this conversation that takes place. Here's, here's what happens. When they came to the other side of the Jordan, that is, Elijah turns and says to Elisha, now listen, man, you follow me everywhere I go. Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? And Elisha says this. Please let me inherit a double portion, that's the King James language, a double share of your spirit so that I can become your successor. In other words, when you leave, I want to become like you. Here's what Paul writes to the the Christians in Philippi. Here's what he writes in verse 9. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit of salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For what reason? For what cause? Here it is. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Did you live a life to bring honor to God in every circumstance? You know, the way we develop a righteous character, part of it is by internalizing the principles of Scripture. Part of it is by deepening our love for God. But part of it is having good mentors in our lives. Do you have a good spiritual mentor in your life? That's the question. Someone who lives out in front of us. And by the way, please don't apply the standard of perfection to them because you're not going to find anybody like that. But someone who actually loves Jesus. And they're not flawless, but they're faithful. <laughs> I mean, they're the kind of person that you want to say, you know what, I want to walk in your shoes. For me, that person is Bishop Donald Green for the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years. I've learned from him how to live a life that that seeks to do the work of God in the world, that seeks to express the love of God in whatever circumstance while maintaining humility, which facilitates it powerfully. Who's your spiritual mentor? Now, if you don't have one, that's a good case for why you ought to be a part of a ministry like NBCC and join one of our nearly 60 virtual small groups. You can join from anywhere in the world. And guess what? In small Christian community, God has the relationships there that you need. And here's my last question that I want to suggest you wrestle with. I I want to suggest that you wrestle with this last question right here. Uh, What's your criteria for a successful life? How will you know at the end that you've lived a, a, a life that's been well lived? Well, let's just end where we started. Verse 20. Remember what Paul says? I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ 
whether I live or die. At the end of your life, you want to be able to look back and it will never be perfect or flawless, but you can say faithfully, I lived the best I could to bring honor to Christ in all circumstances. Now there's a hope that can't be stolen nor leaked. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise. I pray that you will let this message sink deep within as you drive our process of becoming. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, listen, on the Facebook page and also on the website, there's something called a connection card. This is your opportunity to take a concrete next step. There's some, some, some list of some next steps that you can take. And I want to suggest that you look at that, including saying yes to Jesus, being a Jesus follower. And there's also a category there for saying, well, I'm not sure I want to do that, but I'd love to have some more information. You can check that. But here's the response to the message that I hope you'll be able to commit to. Hey, this will change your life if you can make this decision today. I choose to be God's instrument. There it is. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for being with us. I want you to know I do not take it for granted that you're hanging out with us, worshiping and engaging in the teaching. Uh, here's a reflection question that I want you to take a picture of and, uh, and work through. Identify what matters most regarding your faith, family, and life. What's the most important thing you ought to be focused on in your faith, in your family, and in your life at large? 